And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk and one of our very special Thursday shows. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Every Thursday we have the great pleasure of a really special guest and an entire one hour conversation an in-studio audience whose members can ask questions toward the end. That's a great day to kind of do more of a deep dive into some topic. Today we're going to be talking with Chad Jackson and he's here in studio, which is really fun. Instead of being available just remotely, he's here in studio. Uh, and he is the uh, writer and producer, among the producers, of a fabulous documentary, Uncle Tom 2. And we talked on the show previously when Uncle Tom came out. I think maybe Lieutenant Colonel Alan West came on with us to talk about it. But Uncle Tom 2 is relatively new, out this year. And it is just an extraordinary documentary film and very, very timely for the issues facing America. When I read the little summary that they wrote on their website, I thought I couldn't do better myself. So I'm going to just tell you the way they describe it. it Uncle Tom 2 unveils the Marxist strategy of creating false racial tension between Americans with its ultimate goal of obtaining power, destroying capitalism, and replacing God with government. Couldn't have said it better myself. That is the theme of the film. It's, uh, I will quickly tell you, executive producer, Larry Elder, uh, director, Justin Malone, and really a whole, uh, there, yeah, there you can see, my friends, is the, uh, the poster for this film. Um, and it is a, a ex extraordinary documentary, really exploring uh, how Americans uh, get manipulated by an agenda they don't even see. So please help me welcome to the show, Chad Jackson. Well, first of all, thank you for joining me in studio. I love that. And then I want to just, you know, this film, Uncle Tom 2, I do want to give you a moment to tell your previous work. This is not your first effort along these lines, but Uncle Tom 2, this documentary was so powerful and it has so many tentacles to it, so many avenues of a American life explored and the way that Americans are manipulated by an ideology they don't even see happening. And we'll talk about a lot of those things. But first, please, for our listeners, tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so I was actually born and raised uh, here in Texas. I grew up in Mansfield. Uh, graduated from Mansfield High School in 2008. Um, went into the building trades. I became a plumber's apprentice and was able to learn that particular craft and master that craft and start a small business with it. So. Started my small plumbing company, and uh, around that time, I was getting more interested in politics. So I decided to join the Dallas County Republican Party. Uh, did some grassroots stuff with the party, um, but due to having a family and um, basically running my business, I was kind of pulled out of that. And so, uh, while I was just minding my own business, raising my family, running my business, Justin Malone, who is also Dallas-based, uh, called me and said, hey, I got your number from the Dallas County Republican Party. We're making a film about black conservatives. Would you be interested in sitting down for an interview? Had no idea who this guy was. Uh, for all I knew, it was somebody just trying to make a exploitation film about black conservatives. But uh, thought about it for a little while. After a week, I called him back and said, hey, of course, I'll sit down for your, for your interview. So uh, Justin showed up at my uh, my shop, my my business, and him and writer Enzel, who is also one of the producers, sat down and interviewed me, and it was just a great conversation. Uh, Justin's a phenomenal interviewer, a phenomenal documentarian. Um, he was able to interview me. He was also able to interview uh, Pastor Broden, who is Dallas-based, as well as uh, Eugene Ralph, uh, take that footage to LA, where he met with 
um, Larry Elder and Jesse Lee Peterson. And Larry Elder loved it. He loved the interviews and asked if he could be an executive producer for the film. And it was through that interaction that Larry was able to connect Justin with uh, Colonel Alan West, Carol Swain, uh, Brandon Tatum, Candace Owens, and all of these other more prominent uh, black conservatives, uh, the late Herman Cain. I know. And, um, and when the film came out, it surprised even me. I was just blown away at how well the film was made. Uh, I didn't have any part in part one other than being an interviewee on camera. Uh, but after the success of that, Justin and I became friends and he saw in me that I'm a natural researcher. If something interests me, I'm going to obsess over it and dig deep uh, on that particular subject. I've always loved going to libraries, digging through archives, all the things. So it was just a natural fit. And you know, early on in my life when I was in high school, I thought that I would be a filmmaker. So everything just kind of wow. came full circle. It sure did. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so it was just a natural fit. Uh, Uncle Tom 2 is two years of just hard work, of digging through archives, of researching, of connecting dots, and just being blown away, frankly, that uh, the prevailing narratives that all of us buy into, regardless of what side of the political spectrum we're on, um, much of it is a ruse. And we saw Uncle Tom 2 as a way to kind of undercut the prevailing narratives that's uh, leading this country down a downward spiral. Love that. You know, you made reference to the original Uncle Tom film, or Uncle Tom 1, and uh, that actually, I went to the premiere, it was on Juneteenth here mm -hmm. in Dallas. What year was that, 2019? I can't remember. 2020. 2020. It was a fabulous film, and it was really, the energy was really high, and I, I, I'm sure you were at that event. I don't <laughs> think I met you that night. But anyway, uh, that film, it, it was very powerful, and honestly, if that's all you ever had done, your group had ever done, you made an enormous impact. But the, and the Uncle Tom 2, which we're not going to be talking about today, the idea of just directly addressing a term I use quite often on my show, cultural Marxism, mm. directing your attention and exploring, exposing and exploiting the way that really harms so many Americans because they don't know what they're being played by. They don't know the ideology at work under the surface. I think I'm gonna do a quick, I sent to Ziggy, I believe he has them, can't see him in there, but yeah, he does, okay. So I sent to Ziggy some clips, and for our uh, friends listening, you can find these and listen to them yourselves. You're gonna be tempted to do this um, at uncletom.com. There are numerous short and longer teasers. I want to start with the official trailer. It's a little lengthy, but if we quick play that one, then I want to talk some more. But I want our audience to see what this film is all, all the teaser, what this is all about. When you look at these pictures, you get a sense of what black life was like. Some of them look pretty prosperous. Divine Providence was clearly operating in the lives of black Americans. Throughout history, black folks were honorable. They had integrity. That's what black people were. We were never taught that America was bad and that we were not Americans. 
We were raised to love America. Protesters topple a statue of Christopher Columbus and hundreds of statues of vandalism. You see people trying to rewrite history. The American people know these names have to go. Why is that? Whenever you have something to be proud of, people have less of a chance of controlling you. This country is racist from top to bottom, from right to left. And for black people to become a part of that is for them to become, in fact, anti-black and to hate themselves. There is no country in this world that a black person would rather be. Unless, of course, they grow up in this country. You broke the contract for 400 years. We then they're fed a lie that is so deceptive. The reason that that lie exists is power. There are certain people who are using the Negro in order to establish that power in Washington. And the Negro is just merely a pawn in a game that's bigger than he is. those clips I mean that was just one one teaser and I, I think I, I want to kind of dive into the the deeper message of this film and let you talk about that a little bit but in current times here we are in 2022 Black Lives Matter is still a prominent organization they engaged in a lot of violence during 2020 there was a, a premise introduced in American society that America is systemically racist institutionally racist and that therefore the Country should be viewed in racial terms and almost tribal terms. And you take on that very premise in this film. So talk about how you push back against that idea that America is systemically racist. Why do you don't agree with that? And where did the idea come from that they supposedly, we supposedly are that way? Well, the idea comes from cultural Marxism, uh, as you pointed out earlier. Uh, what these people have managed to do, and this is whether you're talking about John Dewey uh, the Frankfurt School, uh, Antonio Gramsci, and everybody else who comes from this ilk here in the United States uh, in the middle part of the 20th century on to, to the, this very day is that they've managed to, in a sense, conflate meritocracy with white supremacy and racism. The idea that you get out of life what you put into it, right? And so because they would rather have a socialist society, a communist society where um, you know, it's just kind of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Um, they have to, in a sense, undercut the things that made America great, this kind of rugged individualism. I mean, if you look at the United States compared to other countries, uh, the fact that our founding fathers were able to genius, genius, geniusly uh, set in motion uh, this republic of ours, where you saw this, this kind of influx and in innovation and in, invention and so on and so forth, uh, black people were a part of that as well. And prior to the 1960s, the black man was productive. He was entrepreneurial. He was a family man. Uh, the majority of black kids were growing up with two parents in a household. And this wasn't unique to black people. This was the American way. Uh, other ethnic groups, whether they be Asian, whether they be Irish, Italian, Jewish, what have you, uh, we all lived this way. Of course, you had your upper echelons and your lower echelons. And what the communists uh, uh, resolved to do, and you can read about this in the 1928 communist Comintern, um, they sought to use color 
as a point of friction and agitation so as to, uh, in a sense, reopen these wounds that have long since healed uh, and to use kind of blackness to push public policy. And they tried and they tried and they tried. They used the NAACP, which was started by uh, white Marxists, which we point out in the film. Mm -hmm. And they used W.E. Du Bois as the kind of black face for this nefarious organization, uh, which is at its, you know, up to its same antics to this very day. And they were unsuccessful, at least when it came to um, penetrating the fabric of black America, because a lot of black people were really going for what the NAACP was trying to do, especially in the South. And so what they, what they figured out over time is that the best way to really kind of sack the black community in America was to do it through the church. And that was kind of the Achilles Hill. And that's where everything went downhill. And so one of the problems that we had in researching and making Uncle Tom too is we needed to kind of turn over a stone that nobody else would dare turn over. And that is the civil rights movement. And what role did the civil rights movement play in kind of setting the downward trajectory of black America? Because if you look at it, again, every black scholar, um, even every conservative can acknowledge at some point that Again, black America from the 1860s at the end of slavery to the 1960s was on an upward trajectory in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of productivity, in terms of family, uh, being family oriented, faith, uh, literacy rates, uh, Thomas Sowell makes this point. Uh, but then it went downhill after the 1960s going into the 1970s. Why is that? And so we, we blame everything except for the civil rights movement. We blame LBJ's war on poverty, which, you know, I think it's well-deserving of a lot of blame. Uh, you had a lot of these, these young social justice movements that were going on at the end of the 1960s, going into the 1970s. You had the hippie movement, you had the free love movement, the anti-war movement. You had uh, black militancy, second wave feminism. And the thing that all of these movements had in common was that they were Marxists. Uh, they didn't get the fast-paced revolution that they wanted, but what they were able to do was to graduate from school uh, establish themselves in many different institutions, uh, professions, careers, get at the heads of those careers, and in a sense, uh, gradually shift the cultural undergird of our society where we move from a Judeo-Christian undergird to a now postmodern secular uh, undergird. Every corporation uh, is behind it, uh, whether they want to or not, and, and this is kind of where we are. And no other ethnic group, as far as I'm concerned, has gotten the ugly end of the stick more than blacks. Because when you look at not only a lot of the cultural Marxist stuff that was going on, but you look at the black exploitation that was going on in the 1970s, a lot of these films that were coming out and the music that was coming out uh, that glorified degeneracy, pimping, hustling, chasing women, all the things, uh, that became vogue, particularly for a lot of young black men. And so, black men began to get their identity more from a television screen than from what their fathers and grandfathers church. were doing. Yeah, and so, and then, yeah, so the church was a big part of that. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to veer away from your question. You, you but. just go, you're, you're in such a great role. Everyone's loving every word you're saying. Um, I do want to go back because I think it's really important. I've talked about on a show in the past, a guy named Manning Johnson, mm -hmm. and uh, very quickly, when the communists 
who always want to expand, always want to spread communism, realize in America they could not spread Marxism the way they, they could in other societies because America was prosperous. As you're saying, uh, black America after slavery uh, it very quickly got involved in, in the economy, established families, became, you know, they, they became prosperous on the road to prosperity. And so when communists coming over to America, maybe like a hundred years ago or so, realized we don't have the economic, the, the argument to make economic exploitation, to divide the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, we can't do that, but we can divide America by race. This mm. guy Manning Johnson, I've forgotten who talked about him in your film, maybe you did, but yeah. Manning Johnson joined the communist movement, a, a black American who bought into the promises, oh, they're going to fix everything, and soon realized he was being used mm. by the communists who were just really trying to plant the seeds of racial division. And he wrote about it, I forgot the name of his book, but he, Manning Johnson wrote a book about just saying, to black America, don't get lured in by the communists. I mean, I, I, I love that fact because I think it helps people see this is not an unintended side effect of spreading communism. It's a goal. It, yeah. It's a mission to divide. Right. Yeah, so the book that you're referring to is called Color, Communism, and Common Sense. Yes. Yeah, it was written by Manning Johnson, and he exposes uh, the real intentions of the NAACP and other such organizations uh, in the middle part of the of the 20th century, which, you know, got its start in the early part of the 20th century during the progressive era. Yeah. Uh, you know, we as conservatives, we like to sit around uh, the kitchen table and talk about, well, what do we need to do to kind of win back America? We need to get back into the schools. We need to get back into all the places. We need to take jobs as art curators and librarians and, you know, basically thought leaders. And we're right to do that, but the progressives were having these same kinds of conversations at the turn of the 20th century. They were meeting in uh, apartments in Greenwich Village uh, in New York. Uh, these were the young uh, uh, college students of elitists who were graduating from Columbia University, from Harvard and, and University of Chicago, uh, all places where John Dewey taught, by the way, which is an interesting thing to note. Uh, John Dewey was an individual who had his, he had his hooks and uh, he was one of the signers of the, the uh, Secular uh, Humanist Manifesto. He was one of the board members of the NAACP. He was one of the board members of Planned Parenthood. Uh, this is a man who we call the father of public education, right? Yeah. And so he had his hooks in all of these different organizations. And so uh, he was kind of the brain trust of these progressive era uh, uh, thought leaders who were able to disseminate into the various fabrics of, of uh, American thought and American life. And so um, to, to take it back to what you're talking about with regard to Manning Johnson, um, uh, Manning Johnson pointed out that the NAACP was going out of its way to create race issues. Now that's an interesting thing, because when I look into a lot of these church bombings that kind of gave necessity to the civil rights movement, you will find that in many, of, in many cases, communists were behind those church bombings. Uh, not, oh only that, not only that, but you also look at the, what we call the Tulsa massacre, right? Yep. Uh, communists were behind that as well. And so a lot of these race issues that were going on, uh, communists had their hands in them. Not only that, but communists also had their hands in the KKK. And so they're playing, in a sense, both sides. On the one hand, they're, they're stoking race division. And on the other hand, they are backing and supporting these so-called progressive politicians who claim that we have the answer. 
and we have the policies to fix this racist system that we're uh, that we're contending with. And the same thing is happening today. Yes, it is happening today. Could not, I, I definitely want to get into today, um, but I want to commend one thing about your film. I mentioned as we were walking upstairs. You got amazing clips. I mean, Saul Alinsky, every serious conservative has read rules for radicals. They paid attention to it. They recognize the strategy of the community organizer and the way Saul Alinsky's teaching well, really uh, was among the bases for President Obama's political thinking. But you actually have clips of him speaking. I've never even seen those before. And if you would, just spend a minute talking about what Saul Alinsky, what was he trying to do? He's a, uh, he, he's a white you know, communist, and, and what he did in terms of planting the seeds of dissension and racial division in America. Yeah, so again, he was trying to undercut uh, a lot of the progress, the organic progress that was being made in some of America's most industrial cities. Uh, and what he would do is he would go to these cities and organize uh, these race agitators uh, to, to basically intimidate the local government to, to get things that they wanted. Um, he wrote a book called Rules for Radicals where he educated these young hippie college students to cut their hair, uh, to start dressing nice and, and in a sense sophisticate their radicalism. Um, and there's a lot of the advice given and Rules for Radicals that you see taking place in the civil rights movement. For example, uh, what Solowinski says in Rules for Radicals is that the number one uh, phase of radical community organizing is to get the people um, to, to make them feel discontent, to make them feel dissatisfied. And to the extent that you can do that, you can then leverage that anger to push some kind of campaign or organization. And that's exactly what was going on in the civil rights movement rhetorically. Uh, for example, Martin Luther King gives a speech of two Americas. He says, we're living in two Americas. Uh, white people are living in, America, in an America of prosperity, of full bellies and, yeah. and rainbows and butterflies, whereas black people are living in a lonely island of despair and the Negro can't get a job and all these things. Of course, he was exaggerating yeah. because if you like what we found is they were actually interviewing a lot of these black working men around that same time. And many, the majority of them were saying that I don't actually think about segregation. It has no toll on my life. In fact, I have white friends. And so a lot he of what was- Martin Luther King, he was doing interviews at this no, time? No, 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 he wasn't was... doing interviews. Like it was a separate entity doing interviews, uh, an apolitical entity doing okay. these interviews to, to basically see if there was any kind of, uh, of parallel between what the civil rights uh, activists were saying and how people were actually living on yeah. the streets. And the reality was that there was a disconnect. And so the thing is like what people fail to understand is much of what we think about the past is shaped by our historians, our textbooks. And we think that these people are being objective kind of purveyors of, of knowledge, when in reality, no, much of these people have an agenda. Uh, they, and their agenda is very much progressive. And so they always want to give you, especially our youth, a reason to uh, vote for certain policies, to support certain politicians, so on and so forth. And they always want to make everything, whether it's the past or the present, uh, uh, look way worse than it actually is in order to, to make you feel that these policies that they're trying to push are necessary 
when in reality, yep. oftentimes they're not. I mean, you saw them uh, just pass the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Now, that sounds good, <laughs> but if you look at that actual, if you look at that language in that, in that legislation, it's utterly abysmal. Um, but they want to make you feel a certain way so as to go along with it. Yeah. I often say leftists have one of their best skills is they can come up with names that sound so wonderful, you know, or names for organizations mm -hmm. or their new mission or policies. Yeah. I mean, you want to get your check, but oh, sure, I'll write that a check. That mm -hmm. sounds good. And they're terrible. You know, that actually a good segue into there's teaser number one. I'm actually jumping around a little bit, Ziggy, in there. Uh, uh, someone, teaser number one. Um, I was thinking about this one because what we're describing is all happening, as I keep saying, I think it's no one likes to feel duped. You don't feel like you got, no one likes that. I got played. I thought I was doing this. It turns out I wasn't. And part of it is the ideology that is just being spewed, but below the surface. And I think this is captured in teaser number one, if you can play that. Many of our people's minds have been whitewashed. If a Negro comes up to you and you turn your back on him, he's got to run to the hunky. We're going to take time and patience with our people because they're ours. All of the Uncle Toms, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk. And when they slap, we're going to bow and we're going to try to bring them home. And if they don't come home, we're going to off them. That's all. How are you? Great. Thank you. What we're covering is a very layered thing. We're talking about over a century of tactics, writings, education, journalism, music, film. All these different vehicles being used to carry out this ideology. I mean, I'm going to tell you again, this film is so well done. The speaking, the, the points you make, the teasers, uh, I mean, that one's uh, to the point you were just making that so much of what is occurring is things that we just, it seems as though these people are well-intended, they have nice messages, they're trying to help, and what they're really doing is eating away at America's culture, society, unity, structure, and, and really trying to entice people to feel victimized, mm -hmm. to feel divided, to feel suspicious, and you can't possibly move forward as a society when you feel the way about each other. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, and when you look at everything that you just saw in that teaser, uh, what we're saying is that this ideology is pushed in a very pervasive way. It's very inundative and it's coming at us from all different sides. And, you know, me being a Christian, uh, when I read the Bible, it says things like, you know, test every spirit to see if it's of God. Yes. And unfortunately, we in the black community or in America at large have not tested the spirit of a lot of these things that have come to us in a very pervasive way to see if there's truthfulness to it or not. It also says in Isaiah that, you know, don't call conspiracy what all these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, but trust God. And again, uh, we're at a place now in history where that R word, that word racist, everybody wants to run from it and they want to, in a sense, uh, acquiesce uh, to what, uh, what the moral standard is as it is laid forth by progressives so as to not be accused of being a racist. If you're black, so as to not 
be accused of being an Uncle Tom. And so we, we uh, are striving for their standard of, standards of morality, and we're adhering to their uh, interpretation of history because we don't want to be, uh, in a sense, alienated from uh, the larger society. And so we play along. And this is the reason why, and I, I, I'm sorry if this is too uh, harsh, but I feel like the Republican Party today is the Democrat Party from 10 years ago. We've lost touch with what uh, a republic actually is. Benjamin Franklin said that uh, you have a republic if you can keep it. Right. And the fact of the matter is what our uh, political adversaries figured out is that the way that you uh, uh, can cause us to lose sight of our role of preserving our republic is to get into the education system to, to uh, make us constitutionally illiterate uh, where we don't think it's necessary to preserve our republic, and here we are. Quickly, stay for our radio listeners. You're going to go off to a break at 30 minutes past the hour. We're going to keep right on talking while you're gone, so don't go away. Come back after three minutes. We'll be right here. This is Debbie George S. America Can We Talk. You can see the whole show at americacanwetalk.org, but don't go away during your three-minute break. Uh, I want to turn to, there was um, many, many themes in your, in your documentary film. I want to talk about uh, education um, and the way there was a description. And this gentleman, I didn't met this gentleman. I'm not sure I say his name correctly. It's Vadi. Is it, did you say Bakum? Did you say his last name? Mm-hmm. Vadi Bakum. Yep. Okay. He, he's so impressive. And mm-hmm. he was a, among the main narrators. Uh, and he was really um, strong in the film, talking about the idea that there never really was intended from the start in America to be a public education system, a required public education system, and that we really didn't start that in America until the late 1800s, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And the role of that system in essentially depriving parents and depriving the church of its otherwise traditional role in educating children, and really, he didn't, I don't think he used this word, but I will, public education system can propagandize children. Mm -hmm. Just talk about that a little bit, please. Yeah, yeah. So, when it comes specifically to education in America, at one point, ed- American students got their education uh, in a variety of ways through the one-room schoolhouse, through uh, uh, church schools, uh, homeschooling, so on and so forth. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had uh, two years of formal education before becoming an attorney. Uh, so that kind of gives you uh, an idea of how uh, sharp a lot of American youth were uh, without having to spend 12 years in a public education uh, system. Uh, Not only that, but if you look at a lot of the letters uh, that were written um, during the Civil War uh, by soldiers to their loved ones, uh, you get a sense of their literacy, uh, their ability to to structure sentences together in a very cohesive way. complex thoughts. And yeah, very complex oh. thoughts. Uh, you don't see a lot of that today. And we live in the down, we live downstream of the implementation of public education. Uh, we were told as a society uh, at the, during the late 1800s that this is the way of the future. All of the American citizens are gonna be bright. The American voter is going to be well-informed and all the things. That's what we were told that was the promise, but it turned out not to be the case at all. Uh, Vody Bauckham is absolutely right in the film where he says the purpose of, of centralizing public education, of creating a department of education in the federal government, the purpose was to dethrone God. It was to undermine and usurp God. Uh, you have to keep in mind that Darwin's On the Origin of Species was uh, published in the mid-1800s, and 
uh, also was uh, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. Um, and there's a lot of tinges of both of those pieces of work in our public education system today. Uh, when you read John Dewey's uh, The Fetish of Primary Education, he, uh, he basically downplays and lambasts the whole concept of the one-room schoolhouse. He says that we need to, uh, in a sense, pry the American student from the rigid uh, uh, lessons of the past that taught us that there's objective reasoning, that there is, you know, uh, knowledge and all the things. And we need to, in a sense, uh, teach our children to be pragmatists, namely to uh, look at life in a very subjective way. All things are relative. Um, and I'm hoping this is making sense because it's very important. Um, that's what they were able to gradually do over time for the past century in our public education system. Uh, around the 1960s, they took prayer out of school, they took the Bible, you know, Bible reading out of school. When the Bible was a main source of teaching children how to read forever. Yeah. You know, not only in America, but around the world. And so, uh, yeah, the whole purpose was to usurp God. When you, when you parallel or when you take into consideration to first wave feminism, uh, which was financed by a lot of nefarious people, uh, they, they made it seem as though this was a movement that was meant to uh, uh, give women the right to vote, um, to, uh, to give them liberation from you know, being the property of their husbands or fathers or what have you. But what, they, what was going on behind the scenes was this agenda to tax the feminine half of our population. And not only that, but to get women into the workplace, when you can get them into the workplace, uh, somebody has to take care of the children. They have to have some place to go. And so then you get the implementation of pre-K and kindergarten where the government's getting earlier access to your children. And the whole purpose of the government getting access to your children is to turn them into statists. Uh, there's a difference between a statist and an individual. An individual believes that it's incumbent upon him to to pursue skills, to pursue knowledge, to pay his bills, to uh, take care of his family, to, to just be a productive individual. The statists, on the other hand, believe that the government is the answer to all of my problems. And when you believe that the government is the answer to all of your problems, you vote for, for, for the, the demagogues who say that we're gonna push the policies, we're gonna do all the things, when in reality, all they want is more power. The goal has always been to expand the role of the government. This is in keeping with uh, with Marxism, because in the Marxist worldview, the government owns the means of production, the government owns pretty much everything, and you're just, you know, you're just a, a, a pawn of the state. You're a cog in their machinery. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it is my, the, you, this is great. We, okay, I'm going to change my answer. We need two hours, because there's so many things I, I want to hit. I'm just, this film is extraordinary. Um, on the subject of education, uh, I love you making that point, because it only recently, because of what happened with COVID, and people had to teach their kids at home a little, because schools were closed, there is a renewed uh, effort for on the part of many parents to impact some school policy, you know, to try to get critical race theory removed from the public schools, to try to get the transgendering kindergartners taken away, like, they, they try to get at little things. But maybe the public education system, the problem is bigger than those isolated issues. The parents are right in what mm -hmm. they're saying to the schools, 
but the bigger issue is who's shaping what your kids believe. And so do you, is your sense that the public schools are so uh, permeated with statism and Marxism that, they, that you're, you just can't get them back on track or you, you can't fix the public ed education system and that you're really better pulling them out? Is that what you think? You're well, I have four children, uh, all of whom are homeschooled. Um, Way to go. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't show up to the school board meetings. That doesn't mean that I'm not paying attention to what they're teaching in schools and who uh, our state school board members are, so on and so forth, what their agenda is, uh, who they are getting, gleaning their um, information from for the best way to go in terms of you know curriculum. Uh, there's a professor uh, who teaches at Harvard, her name is Camille, uh, not Camille, who am I thinking of? Elizabeth Bartholet. She wrote a, a piece in 2020 talking about homeschooling is white supremacist. Yeah. Um, and so unfortunately there are a lot of school districts who glean curriculum from the likes of Elizabeth Bartholet. And that's a problem. And this is something that our property taxes are funding. And again, we don't, we don't pay attention to those things. We hear critical race theory in the news and we think that's the problem. And we show up to fight, you know, we, you know the mama bears, they show up to the, the school board meetings to protest that. And, and I don't want to discourage them from doing that. Like we need to fight from every facet. Uh, however, you know, I, far be it from me to say, pull your kids out and you've accomplished what it is you need to accomplish. There's still a lot of fight that need to be uh, uh, engaged in. Um, On behalf of children around the country. It, absolutely. Right. And so the thing is, is like what, what these people understand is that when it comes to adults, adults are set in their ways. They're going to do what they want to do. Um, the children is where it's at for a lot of these people. Yeah. And they understand that to the extent that they can uh, use, as you said earlier, they're the kings of, of acronyms and slogans and buzzwords. And so they are very deceptive and nefarious in a lot of these things that they're bringing into the school system. One of which uh, for you know, people who are watching and our educators, they, they may have heard of this, but social emotional learning, SEL. Uh. Uh, there are these other acronyms of trauma informed learning. Um, culturally relevant learning. So they're, they're bringing in all these slogans and buzzwords to make you think like, oh, okay, those are smart sounding words. So chances are, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, like have at it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cede the responsibility of educating my kids to you because you sound smart. But the reality is all of these are uh, just kind of a Trojan horse to usher in cultural Marxism. Amen. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Um, I do want to hit. We do at this show. We, well, we have a few more minutes before we get. Uh, then we turn to our audience. Let them ask some questions. But um, yeah, too many ways to go. Uh, in the film, there is discussion about in the very beginning. I just want to mention it because I thought, um, which was when the sixteen nineteen project launched, mm -hmm. and this this effort to try to redefine this beginning of America and how America really was founded then that was the first date of the alleged arrival of slaves in America so that's what they want to count America from. Uh, you featured some apparently prominent psychiatrists and psychologists who were saying that it's very real that black Americans today suffer PTSD because of either slavery or because of segregation and that the, that is carried down. And it really, uh, it struck me as such an 
evil, frankly, mm -hmm. thing to say because it causes anyone, a young black American who hasn't had the benefit of, of thinking as you uncovered, to think, yeah, everything going on is, is somehow due to the past, due to my ancestors, and make you feel helpless. Like you can't, I, I mean, to me, it's the most sinister, insidious thing to do to cause people to believe I have no way forward because I'm suffering from something that happened centuries ago. Yeah. I mean, do you see it as sinister as I do? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely sinister. I mean, the difference between me and a gang member, right? I, I will never join a gang. And the reason I wouldn't join a gang is because I feel like I have too much to, li to live for, right? I have children to take care of. And not only that, but I do have a little bit of pride because I know my history and I know American history, and that's something I want to keep going. Uh, the gang member doesn't have that. There's a disconnect. And the fact of the matter is a lot of these psychiatrists, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, frankly, it doesn't matter to me, but they kind of perpetuate uh, this, this chasm between uh, the masses and their history. And this is the reason why Uncle Tom too, it was important for us to show uh, this beautiful black culture that existed yes. prior to the 1960s, because to the extent that you realize that you come from a lineage of patriots, of God-fearing men and women, of you know children who had respect for their elders and who uh, you know who wanted to be something when they when they grew up, to the extent that you have that, uh, you want to keep that going. But if you feel like you've come from a lineage of people who've always been oppressed, who've always been under the thumb of the white man, who uh, live in a country that doesn't want you, uh, you're an African hyphen American. In other words, you are uh, a step removed from the larger American family. A lot of this stuff, again, was by design. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, who was in the uh, trailer that you played yeah. earlier, where he said to become American is to hate yourself. Right. Yes. Um, Unbelievable. He was responsible or one of the people who were responsible for pushing the, the phrase African-American. And he said that if you think you're an American, you'll fight to uphold capitalist America. If you know you're not an American, you'll fight to destroy capitalist America. This was the strategy of coining the phrase African-American. This is why I don't refer, you know, refer to myself as an African-American. I refer, refer to myself as an American. Uh, but when you begin to understand all of these like little uh, details uh, to get you to, uh, again, uh, set you on a path of destruction and of basically self-destruction, that's exactly where we are. It's mind-blowing. It is. And actually, it's, I commend your film so much because it exposes these kind of things using the words and language and clips of the people saying them. And then you able, your and your others in the film able to respond and, and kind of correct them. I want to turn to religion. You mentioned earlier about the use of religion itself being, being a way to weaken black culture and the family. Early in the film, I'm pretty sure it's Lieutenant Colonel Alan West uh, made the comment about when I was growing up, you know, you, every Sunday morning you get up, you have some breakfast, everybody goes to Sunday school, you know, that's what you're going to do. And, and that's really, I think, the common experience for, uh, at least in my generation, pretty much everybody. And, and, and people who were Jewish went to synagogue on Saturday, but they, it was just the assumption, of course, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And it, at the beginning portion, they were talking about that, it turned to saying, well, and, and now you have a majority or some significant plurality of black Americans who don't really believe in God. And I want to ask you, how, in your view, did this Marxist agenda 
invade the church? Is it that the, the Marxists invaded society so that church became irrelevant? Or do you feel like it's they invaded church and change was being taught? Or is it some of both? Yes, yes to both fronts. Um, when you look at specifically black America at the turn of the 20th century, you had people in leadership and it wasn't so much that they were vying to be leaders. It was the fact that they were, uh, they naturally had this kind of way about them that people looked up to them. Uh, one of whom was Booker T. Washington, who we talked yes. about in the film. Uh, he, I mean, if you want to be motivated and inspired, I recommend, you know, reading, um, up from slavery and my larger education. Those books are just chock full of, of just inspiration. Yes. Um, and it, one of the things that you get out of it is regardless of what your circumstances are, it's incumbent upon you to uh, be productive, to be a man, to be a woman, um, to be accountable, to be responsible. And don't worry about everybody else. Uh, because to the extent that you're doing what you're supposed to do, people will see that and they'll they'll rise to the occasion. You know what I mean? And these are very biblical concepts. You know what I mean? Um, so I say that to say this. Uh, Booker T. Washington himself was a believer. He read scripture every morning. He encouraged his students to do the same. He encouraged, he, he encouraged the men in the so-called Negro Business League to do the same. Um, these were people who were realtors, who were construction workers, who were industrialists, uh, who disseminated throughout the South and was able to start businesses. And, you know, we, we think of Black Wall Street being a, a Tulsa, Oklahoma thing, when in reality there were, were many such Black Wall Streets all throughout the South. Uh, and they were gleaning from the teachings of people like Booker T. Washington. So he died in 1915. There was a, a man who was born in 1915 named Joseph H. Jackson. He became a pastor uh, and he preached repentance. He preached the gospel. And not only that, uh, practically, he, he preached a lot of the things that, that uh, Booker T. Washington was preaching that, you know, regardless of your circumstances, be a man, be productive, be accountable. So Joseph H. Jackson became the president of the National Baptist Convention. Now, the, the National Baptist Convention boasted 8 million black people, uh, 8 million churchgoers. It was the largest black convention in the world. Um, when it came to the question of civil rights, uh, Jackson's strategy, which was working, uh, was, you know, as you familiarize yourself with people of other ethnic groups in the marketplace, you're naturally going to have familiarity with those people and together uh, you can uh, chisel away at these Jim Crow laws that existed at the municipal and state level. And this was actually happening. A lot of these laws were falling off the books well before the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Wow. Okay. And so, um, but the thing is, is like you're, you're, you're fighting uh, Jim Crow without a Marxist tinge to it, while at the same time keeping your dignity intact, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's the way it was moving. So along comes the civil rights movement, along comes Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, as we are told, was a pastor, right? He was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. But right. what we're not told is that to the extent that he got his doctorate, he cheated to get it. Uh, much of you know, what he wrote was plagiarized, not because he was being sneaky and plagiarizing you know, to, to get the grades. He was doing so at the guidance of his professors who were positioning him to be what he became because they saw something in him. 
this was the son of a Negro pastor in the South. He was a great orator. And, and you know, truth be told, Martin Luther King was very uh, smart. He graduated high school at the age of 19, or at the age of 15. Uh, he writes in his papers that by the time he went to college, he, uh, he accepted the liberal worldview um, wholesale. Uh, his professors, his white professors, his you know uh, theological professors, who themselves were Marxists, uh, wrote letters back and forth to each other, saying that this is precisely the Negro minister who can take our worldview into the stubborn Negro South, and so they helped him plagiarize a lot of his papers. Um, and so anyway, he he graduates and then he moves to to Alabama, and he seeks to oust Dr. J. H. Jackson as the president of the National Baptist Convention. And he was unsuccessful in doing so because the black community in the South, the black community in the South overwhelmingly supported Jackson. And so uh, at the uh, advice of Stanley Levison, who was a white Marxist in Martin Luther King's inner circle, uh, he advised King, okay, what if you started another organization? So they started an organization called the Progressive National Baptist Convention to rival the National Baptist Convention. That didn't do very well. And so they said, okay, let's start the, uh, the Southern Leadership Conference. Well, that was too secular in, 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 in origin. So they said, let's start the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So the SCLC was meant to be a rival to the National Baptist Convention and the rivalry between uh, Jackson and King was much the same as the rivalry between Du Bois and Washington. You have this progressive uh, kind of Marxian based way of fighting uh, injustice. And you have this more conservative patriotic American way of fighting injustice. And to the extent that King's messaging won out, it wasn't because the black community overwhelmingly supported him. It was rather that the uh, progressive media who had the Time magazine, who had the New York Times, who had the media and the historians and everything else that went along with it, they were able to enshrine him as you know, the moral leader of, of, of our day. That's literally what they called him. He's a moral leader, leader of our day. And uh, the rest is history. Toward the end of his life, he's talking about mass redistribution of wealth. He's yes, talking he about a universal basic income. All these things that are very Marxist policies. These are the things that he's talking about. So we're, we hope to get more into that in part three uh, of Uncle Tom. I was going to ask you, I heard there was going to be a part three. It's going to yeah. be on NLK. I must say that, you know, for, for many people uh, who are grateful for ending segregation, they look at Martin Luther King, and everyone can quote his, you know, someday I want my children to be judged based on the content of character, not color of skin. That message is beautiful and right, and everyone goes, yeah, great. But uh, I'm going to leave Martin Luther King's legacy to another interview. Uh, I want to just do one last question and then turn to our audience if they have questions. But So here we sit in 2022. Uh, I would say that the Black Lives Matter movement and critical race theory movement, the 1619 Project, have been pretty successful in American society of dividing us and, and you know, spreading what I see as a lie of just that there's massive systemic racism, massive institutional racism. And so we, we feel concerned. I mean, people who love America, people who are raised in the Christian faith, as I was, you know, you love your neighbors, yourself. That's, you know, that's kind of what we always just stress. You know, we're all God's children. We're all equal. We feel like we're against, we're up against this this monolithic push to divide us to make us feel as though there's just no way out we're divide we're, we're gonna you know end up really um unable to function in the way the founders intended as a republic 
And so your film, huge, huge contribution. How do you get people who need to hear the message to listen to it? How do you get it out there? How do you get to open some hearts and minds, not just among black Americans who need, who need to stop, who your message would say you don't need to agree you're a victim, but also to the young person of any racial background who thinks I'm a Marxist because I'm standing up for making things better. How do you get this out? I mean, I, I know it's not your responsibility personally to do this, but if you'd like to, that'd be great. <laughs> but how do you get this out there to get people to hear it? That's a fantastic question. I haven't quite, I mean, I've gotten it plenty of times and I haven't you know, found the silver bullet. I think, um, you know, there, there are some people who have criticized uh, me and Larry Elder and, and other people in the film for preaching to the choir. But I don't, know, I don't know that we are, because the fact of the matter is the choir is kind of singing out of tune right now. Um, and, and I mean that, I mean that quite literally. I mean, the thing is, is like, how many people know the things that you and I talked about in this past hour? Uh, the fact of the matter is, we, the reason we had a so-called silent majority when Trump won in 2016 is because we were, uh, in a sense, intimidated into being silent, yes. right? We, we've we've uh, let our foot off the gas and we allowed these cultural Marxists to kind of take the will. And these are the people who are driving the narrative and they are pushing this revisionist history on us in the public square and they're teaching it to our children. Uh, you have people who are in their 60s and 70s who believe uh, that, okay, well, maybe there is a point to America being a racist country, yet they can't tell you about, you know, this kind of racism that existed uh, when they were younger, right? So there's a kind of disconnect where you learn to see reality through the lens of a television screen than your own um, experiences and the black friends that you had growing up and so on and so forth. Now, to the extent that you might say, well, I've heard, you know, my uncle calls somebody the N-word when I was a young, when I was a kid. Well, I have similar stories of how my black aunts called somebody the N-word, or a white person a honky or a cracker or what have you. People do crappy things. Uh, that doesn't mean we should lose sleep or we should you know, stop our own productivity and taking care of our families and, and being patriots. We have this one country, we have to share it, and there's no need in being at each other's throats for no other reason than something we saw on the news, for no other reason than the fact that you have these social engineers who are pushing curriculum, who are uh, the heads of journalism, so on and so forth, who see it as leverage to give their favorite politicians more power, because that's exactly what's going on right now. And so to the extent of, you know, how, how do we get this uh, message out to people? Um, the way that my mind works on that particular question is, my hope is that to the extent that people are watching it, that they retain the information, that they're encouraged to go do more research, fact check us, but go do your own research too and retain this information enough to where you can then disseminate it in your own circles of influence because not everybody's going to watch the film and you know uh, if if you can decentralize the way in which this message this this information is getting out to where it's not coming from a film but it's coming from a multitude of people and yeah. and you know multitude of circles i think it will be more effective in that way than people just watching the film hey don't get me wrong i still think people should watch the film um, but i think we should do more retaining of the information than just watching it putting it on the shelf and then forgetting about it love that okay for radio listeners you're going to go off to uh three minutes before the top of the hour you'll be done to watch the whole interview, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org and you'll be able to watch this whole interview. Be up 
probably by tomorrow, americacanwetalk.org, and that's where you can find everything about our show. We're going to turn to our audience to ask if they have any questions, but I want to make one funny comment, or I mean, observation. You talked about saying, well, people say you're kind of preaching to the choir. Well, uh, and that was a criticism. I do a lot of public speaking to women's groups, and I've had people say that to me about preaching to the choir because mm. they're already with us. And my husband has made that, said that same line to me. But sometimes the choir is out of tune. <laughs> it's a great line because yeah. really when you give people information, facts, arguments, passion, you do inspire them to speak up. Even if they kind of knew you were right, it's a great thing. And then the other thing about this film, my happy listeners, I downloaded it this morning. I bought it so I can play it. I want to play it at our home with some neighbors. We're in a new neighborhood, so I don't really know my neighbors yet. This is the way we'll get to know them. I'm going to invite some people over, watch a film, and we'll talk about it. Because otherwise, you know, they can listen, and, and then we could just talk about the weather if we don't talk about the film. Right. But it's a great way to share it, to have people in your home listen to it and talk about it. So with that, we have questions in the audience. We do have questions in the audience. Can you guys speak way up, please? OK. Can we hear now? OK. So. I'd like the first question to be um, two quotes that came to mind after listening. Thank you for being here. Is that one, um, a prominent black man said, you would never let, only a fool would trust the enemy to teach their children. And the other one would say, it's easier to convince people, to fool people than it is to convince them they've been fooled. Yeah. Who do you feel is the most detracting of the message you're trying to convey with this movie? Who do you get the most pushback mm. from? Um. Believe it or not, we haven't um, received a lot of pushback. Uh, to the extent that we have gotten pushback, it's from people who you would expect, you know, your usual suspects, you know, black liberals, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, I anticipated conservatives not receiving the movie very well going into the release of it, but I was proved wrong. Um, when you look at a lot of the reviews that we're getting, a lot of people are just blown away and they're happy uh, that they're being challenged on a lot of the preconceived notions because the thing is uh, when it comes to those of us who are on the right and those who are on the left uh, we start from the same presuppositions because we went to the same schools we're exposed to the same journalism we're exposed to the same lies that you just quoted uh, and so what we do and how we interpret that information um, may be different and that might you know inform why we vote a certain way uh, but what Uncle Tom aims to do, what Uncle Tom too aims to do, is to challenge the basic preconceived notions in the first place. And so as far as like who are the biggest uh, uh, challengers, I don't think that there are any worthy challengers uh, to this information uh, because, you know, it's the truth and how do you deny the truth, so. Amen. We got a question here. Okay, first of all, Chad, I want to thank you so much. Uh, the first movie, Uncle Tom, I purchased many copies and I gave them out and tried to help to uh, educate people. And I hope I did some good in that respect. As a Jew, I, really, I was raised to identify with the black community. Uh, our story of Passover, the story of freedom, universal story of, of freedom, God-given freedom, is another way that we have learned to identify with the plight of the, of the black community. And I know that the uh, Jewish people marched with uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, great uh, biblical scholar of ours. Uh, we all marched with Martin Luther King, and and we were very we were herald he heralded us all um, to further recognize the, the plight 
of, of the black community. Um, I'm concerned now because there's a dramatic rise in anti-Semitism and we have Kenway West now who in his ranting has brought on a new uh, worth, a terrible um, era of anti-Semitism. And uh, I'd like to know how you feel that will, um, uh, I know that for the Jewish people, if nothing else, he has been instrumental in unifying, uh, unintentionally unifying the Jewish people now who have been very, very uh, diverse in their backgrounds. So um, how, how are you handling that? And also in response to Debbie's question to you about what can you do, I would like to see the churches and the schools um, almost have a mandatory showing of your movie. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I would see, I would imagine as Pastor Cruz has been doing, talking to the preachers, that, um, uh, that the it begins also with the churches helping to uh, to spread this word. And it's sad that I see black people, they don't know that the, the Republican Party in Texas was founded by 150 blacks and 20 whites. It's a, it's the party of Abraham Lincoln. And just simple facts like that are not being told. Thank you. That, that, was, a, that was a lot, but thank you for that. <laughs> um, so when it comes to, uh, um, you know, Kanye West comments and, you know, anti-Semitism. Uh, I've actually had this conversation with a lot of younger uh, Jewish people. And the thing is, is like, um, what's so difficult and complex about that conversation in particular is that to the extent that you have people like, you know, Saul Alinsky, uh, who called himself Jewish, or uh, even Eric Mann, who's the father of Black Lives Matter, um, who says that he's a socialist Jew, right? Um, the question becomes like, are you really Jewish in terms of your faith? Uh, because everything that you're espousing seems to be more rooted in secularism and humanism and atheism and Satanism in some respects. And so these people unfortunately conveniently kind of scatter and hide behind Judaism when they're challenged or scrutinized for a lot of the nefarious things that they're doing. And that's what's difficult about this conversation. Um, I wish that people would kind of brittle their tongue and, and be a little bit more uh, strategic, and not strategic, but, but that they would choose their words a little bit more carefully um, because the problem isn't the Jews. You know what I mean? The problem is certain ideologies that are uh, destructive, whether they're coming from a Christian, whether they're coming from an atheist or whomever. Or whomever. The, the unfortunate thing that I've discovered in my research, and again, we talk about it with black activism, the black social justice movements that have come, and even with feminism, is that they, you know, a person hides behind their being black. And so because I'm a black person, you have to listen to what I have to say, and everybody else has to just go for it and walk on eggshells around me because if you challenge me on something that I'm doing, uh, it's not because you're challenging it on its merits, but you're, cha you're challenging it on the fact that you're a racist and you're, you're coming after me as a black man. And so what I told these, uh, these younger Jewish people is that, you know, I get up here every day. Um, I look at people like Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois critically. 
I look at people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, and I say, look, these are the people who are professing to be leaders of the black community, and they're wrong, and here's why they're wrong. They're actually more of a detriment to black America and America at large than they are a benefit. And so it's incumbent upon me as a black man to challenge these people uh, in, the, in the public. And so I, I, I think that when it comes to different ethnic groups, when it comes to different faiths, uh, some people uh, challenge people in their group publicly. Some people do it more, you know, uh, you know, amongst themselves. And I think that might be true of the Jewish community where a lot of Jews wouldn't necessarily come out in public and challenge some of these people, but they would talk about it in amongst themselves at synagogues, so on and so forth. That might be the case. I don't know. I've never been to a synagogue before, but um, I do encourage some of these younger Jews to call out uh, these individuals who are, uh, uh, in a sense, trying to bastardize uh, the faith of Judaism by uh, promoting degeneracy and decadence and then hiding behind uh, their Jewish faith or their so-called Jewish faith whenever they're called on it. And so, yes, I do wish Kanye would have, uh, you know, chose his words a little bit more carefully, but I don't think uh, Kanye is especially any kind of bastion of, you know, intelligence or, um, <laughs> or the way that we ought to live our lives. Like, this is a man who worships money, he worships fame, and he goes back and forth on certain things. And it's like, you know, I, I think that he's distracting from a lot of the the serious things that the more serious things that are going on in this country and in the world our problem isn't jews our problem isn't you know a certain group our problem is an ideology that's deteriorating uh, our society especially in the west so sorry my answer was all over the place but you know i'm sorry we are longer than we're supposed to be it's a little after the ending time of my show um and i i can see there are several more questions in the audience so may i volunteer for you can hang around a few minutes and talk to people maybe yeah that's fine. okay let's do that because i i'm, I'm pushing past the time we're supposed to do that uh, first of all chad jackson thank you so very much for joining me today thank you for being here thank just you. wonderful thank you. Thank you. And for American Come Talk listeners, uh, the next two Thursdays will be very, very exciting. A week from today, which will be two days after Election Day, we will have joining us in studio Seth Keschel, who is an amazing... Um, he will have more data than you can possibly process. He'll have it all memorized. He'll have looked at all 50 states to try to essentially say, do the outcome being reported in this midterm election, is it consistent uh, with all the data he has gathered? He was among the people who said back in 2016, when everyone was predicting Hillary was going to win by whatever it was, you know, shoot 97% chance likelihood of winning. Uh, he said consistently all along, Trump is going to win. He even broke down percentages by states, and he was right. He's amazing in numbers, and he's going to examine with us uh, how real the results are and how accurate they are for our elections. So that's Seth Keschel in a week. The following week, we have in studio Kevin Freeman. Uh, he has his own uh, great, great show, Economic War Room. Uh, he's an economic, uh, just a brilliant guy, going to talk with us about the impending um, shortages, uh, food shortages, about ESG, how much that impacts uh, our economy and our decisions and where our money goes. Uh, we're going to talk about the CBDC, the central bank digital currency mission of the Biden administration, all the ways the government, can, other ways they can take away your freedom. So those are the next two um, Thursdays. And then we have Thanksgiving, the one of the most favorite holidays of the year. So 
want to thank everyone for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. My show is America Can We Talk. Thank you for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you this coming Monday. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?